The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics and so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Ewan Potts. Well, President Biden is in Northern Ireland today. He's heading to the Republic uh, later on. Lizzie, it always used to be called a special relationship, didn't it? It did, but I don't know if it is now. We had in the readout newsletter, which is always worth reading, uh, the title yesterday was Can Rishi Keep It Up? It listed Sunak's achievements so far, the Brexit deal on Northern Ireland, immigration, tough talking announcement, the budget that didn't explode on impact, a crowd-pleasing crime crackdown. And yet now it seems that maybe... Joe Biden's putting Rishi Sunak in his place. He's spending more time in Ireland than in the UK on his visit to commemorate the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, maybe. But to be honest, we sort of saw this coming, didn't we? I mean, Biden has been pretty clear. He's proud of his Irish roots. We've had little snubs before, haven't we, on the BBC? Uh, so it's, it's, not, it's not really a surprise, is it? I thought it was going to be different with Rishi Sunak, you know, different to the way the special relationship was under Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, at least. Or maybe he needs to put in some more diplomatic legwork. So President Biden is in Northern Ireland today before heading to the Republic of Ireland in a visit to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Peace Agreement. But what does the visit mean for what always used to be called the special relationship? Well, joining us now is someone from the US who's now over here via Asia, our new UK economics and government managing editor, Brendan Scott, in what we hope will be the first of many conversations on the UK Politics podcast. Brendan, before we think about the current relationship, give us some historical context to this visit and the relationship between the US and the UK, once called special. Yeah, so that term special relationship has been around for a long time. Um, Of course, the the U.S. and the U.K.'s relationship uh, goes back even further than that. Uh, I think what, what what we're talking about, really, when we're talking about the special relationship uh, being in, in decline, we're talking about uh, as a measure of the last hundred years, where these, these two uh, powers came together, fought and won two world wars, uh, stuck it out through the Cold War uh, and into the uh, post-Cold War peace that that followed after that. Uh, I, I think we've seen that under strain uh, for the better part of, uh, of three decades now, probably going back to the uh, Iraq War and the uh, public opposition to that war here uh, in the UK. Um, but it's been put under the greatest strain probably by Brexit and the uh, and the fact that the U.S. just doesn't see the U.K. as its way into uh, the European uh, way onto the European political stage anymore. How do the two countries see each other now? Is, would it be correct to say that uh, we only have we as in the U.K. only have one special relationship? Whereas I feel like 
in the US, there, there are many special relationships with allies in Asia, you know, Japan, for instance. And of course, Canada is a very close ally. Uh, Mexico, a big trading partner. So I feel like the US has a lot of special relationships going on. Yeah, well, the U.S. is is really increasingly fixated and focused on uh, its uh, its international competition with China, uh, the area which I had uh, was just uh, lately covering, uh, and and both parties in the U.S. are are focused like a laser on the debate over how the U.S. can better position itself. Uh, to compete with China uh, for the rest of the 21st century. And that has led to uh, a reaffirmation of the U.S.'s uh, historic uh, political and security ties in the Pacific. Uh, You mentioned Japan. uh, South Korea is also a big focus. Uh, The question about the U.S.'s relationship with Taiwan. Uh, Australia uh, has suddenly become a much bigger topic in the U.S.'s security debate as well. Uh, and I think that that, uh, that is playing into this in part. Europe and the broader question of Europe over, uh, over Ukraine and, uh, and how to counter uh, Russia's uh, aggression in, in that zone has involved the U.K., but it's been more about uh, a debate with, with Germany, with France, um, and it's not solely a question of the U.S. and the U.K. hanging together anymore, uh, as it as it was so much of the last century. I want to come back to that military relationship uh, in a bit, but just focusing on the visit to Northern Ireland by Joe Biden for the Good Friday Agreement, he's actually spending more time in Ireland than north of the border, and then he's sending the First Lady to the King's coronation next month. Is Biden trying to snub the Prime Minister? <laughs> Well, I think it's it's hard to say whether he's trying to snub the prime minister, but I do think it is notable that they are not the U.S., the White House are not really trying to correct the perception that they are not uh, giving uh, the U.K. Uh, its its full due here. They're not not snubbing him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the current. It's a debatable about whether it would have been made sense for Biden to go to the coronation amidst all these other meetings that he's having with with Sunak. Uh, this one included uh, to come here so frequently. He was here for the Queen's funeral uh, last year. So, uh, you know that like that in itself, I think maybe a separate. Uh, you know, it's a different part of the equation. But you know, we had them in this meeting describing uh, describing the meeting with Sunak. Uh, in Northern Ireland as a coffee, uh, and then Sunak was calling it a bilat. Uh, so uh, they, that question about whether it's, uh, you know, about the status of the, of the meeting, about, about how much um, respect they're giving to the UK, they, don't, they do not seem to have that as a priority, correcting that perception that they're not giving the UK that respect. Does so the state of the, the, the relationship, the special relationship with, with the U.S. hold up a mirror to the U.K.'s broader problems, though? I mean, its relationship with, with China has soured over the last 10 years, obviously not alone in that. Its relationship with the EU has, has obviously soured. It sort of feels like the U.K. is, is fishing around f- for something to hold on to, uh, and that's becoming increasingly difficult in this world, which is kind of, you know, s- splitting apart. Yeah, it's primarily, the, it's primarily the UK's problem, and the UK is hoping for the US to help them solve it. And right now, the Biden administration doesn't seem to be uh, the partner in that regard that they, that they would hope for, at least not the Tories, um, you know, at least not uh, at this moment, this administration. 
um, you know, there's there there's a lot of alignment on their overall goals, uh, you know, strategically, economically, uh, environmentally, even. Uh, but but the but the U.S. does just doesn't have an incentive to dance to the U.K.'s tune on this. I think you mentioned, uh, you know, the from the U.K.'s perspective, we have uh, a question about whether they they want to be tethered to who they want to be tethered to. Which which of the big three economic blocks is it? The U.S. is it Europe? Is it China? Brexit made a decision that it isn't Europe. Uh, that leaves the U.S. and China. There's a lot of uh, debate and uh, indecision about whether the UK can really be a go-between on China. There's a lot of uneasiness about what that what that would mean in terms of the trade-offs from a from a um, from the perspective of of maintaining the liberal global order. And so it really comes down to uh, the U.S. And if the U.S. is not is not reciprocating, that it, that does leave the UK with nothing. Yeah, and the UK's had an easier time joining CPTPP than getting a US trade deal, by the looks of things. Um, just on the military front, we've also learned from a leak of top-secret Pentagon papers that UK Special Forces are operating in Ukraine, 50 of Britain's elite soldiers, I think it is. What does that say about the special relationship? Does it show, in fact, that cooperation is continuing where it matters, or does it show that the relationship's actually further eroded by this seeming breach of trust? I think that on the the front of the leak, the UK and the US have been through this a long time, um, and they've and they've this that part of the relationship has weathered a lot of blows like this. And I don't expect that that the this particular leak will uh, will undermine uh, this particular relationship uh, in some lasting way. I think when we do talk about the the special relationship. Um, in whether it's still relevant on the military front, it, it is uh, has to be uh, along with possibly Japan, uh, the closest military relationship that the U.S. has, and that looks set to endure. We can't forget that just about just a month ago that uh, Rishi Sunak was in uh, was in California with Joe Biden, uh, you know, unveiling the uh, profile of this new uh, submar- nuclear submarine deal with Australia that really underscores just the, the, the level of comfort between these two in terms of intelligence sharing. So the UK is still important militarily to the US, and I'm slightly embarrassed to take it to the other place. When it comes to trade, it is not the case, is it? So the UK is really keen to begin talks uh, about, about a trade deal, but we're not even close to kind of talks about talks, are we? Yeah, well, right now there's a lot of debate over the semantics. Uh, the UK is trying to get away from the term free trade agreement, FTA. Uh, the the Biden administration is continuing to bat away any discussion about an FTA. Uh, you know, the the administration was just out uh, just out at the before the recording of this podcast, saying that they won't be talking about any free trade agreements in the course of this meeting in Northern Ireland, uh, holding out the uh, prospect that that sort of thing could come up uh, in an expected visit by uh, the prime minister to Washington in June. So uh, they're not knocking it away completely, um, but they're but they're not, again, they're not encouraging it either. And, you know, the reason that Joe Biden's here is to commemorate the Good Friday Agreement. It is one of the few successful democratic peace deals of the past half century. It's a model globally for peace and reconciliation. 
Is Joe Biden, in your view, striking the right tone, given the political stalemate, the social divisions that continue in Northern Ireland? Well, it, it's been fascinating uh, here, uh, being here in the last few days as someone who grew up thinking of himself as an Irish American to see how some of Biden's past comments have landed with a thud in Northern Ireland, particularly, uh, you know, among the uh, unionist community. Uh, it, do, it does seem that he's put much more emphasis on this trip about uh, making it about his connection to the Republic of Ireland than his desire for um, uh, some progress in, in Northern Ireland. That's uh, people have been pointing out the uh, the duration of the time he's spending in both places. Um, it does it does seem though to give him a to give him a, a fair shake here that uh, the prospect of some breakthrough uh, on the uh, stalemate over power sharing and and Stormont was already uh, off the table and there's not really there wasn't much expectation for what he could have accomplished. So maybe he's just decided to move on and focus on the happier part of the trip. Focus on the 2024 election. (laughs) (laughs) Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. Brendan Scott, our uh, UK economics and government managing editor. Thanks so much for joining us today. Now, the current junior doctor strike is going to be the most disruptive strike we've seen in NHS history. Those are the words of NHS England's National Medical Director Stephen Powis. It's day two of the four-day strike by junior doctors here in England. We're going to dig into this now with Chris Thomas, head of IPPR's Commission on Health and Prosperity. Chris, why is this strike such a big deal? So I think uh, the strike's the strike's a big deal for a number of reasons. I mean, not not least that it's uh, that it's four days, which is which is which is long by um, by usual standards, but it's also really the time at which it comes, which is one in which the NHS is under severe pressure, and I think that context is really important um, because essentially what you might see the strike at is junior doctors sounding a kind of fire alarm on the state to which healthcare has got to in this country. Um, on almost every indicator, things are very stretched, uh, are under huge pressure. We're not doing very well on things from knee replacements to cancer. And I think this moment is one uh, that, that things really need to change. And just with the pay issue, though, we have seen some resolution with other parts of other uh, disputes within the NHS. And this looks like it's a very long way from resolution, but presumably there is a, a middle way. Yeah, it feels like it feels like that gap seems uh, initially bigger, doesn't it? I think we saw though that the trajectory of negotiations with with other NHS professions was this distance, um, uh, uh, but that distance can close relatively quickly. It is possible for this to come to a speedier resolution. Things turn around very quickly. I think what that takes is is an openness to government to negotiate. Now, um, we're talking about a profession here that's had a, a, a very large real terms pay cut since uh, kind of austerity began in, in 2010. We're talking about one that's incredibly important to the functioning of the NHS. And given that we have uh, a reality in the UK at the moment where health is one of the biggest challenges our economy faces, it's driving lots of people out of work. It's very hard to do work if you've got you know kind of anything from uh, a, a very bad knee to to to, to hips to endometriosis um that just suggests that that a swift resolution is needed that government should cost that into their kind of uh, equations and and open up a kind of reasonable negotiating um uh, room for for them to talk to junior doctors and their representatives 
Well, I want to ask you about the counter-argument, the impact on patients, because Downing Street has highlighted that the last set of strikes saw around 180,000 operations cancelled over three days. It's predicting higher numbers this time. How concerning is that? It's of course concerning, and uh, but I think the, the the thing that's even more concerning is is what's happened over you know the last twelve months and 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 even before. So since twenty ten, what we've seen in the NHS is kind of a, a slow erosion of of standards where people have struggled, uh, and I'm sure those listening can can relate to struggling to get a GP appointment to uh, A and E waits being longer to um, the distance between a diagnosis and treatment beginning taking longer and that means that for patients their their outcomes have been getting worse and worse and that's been happening over a long time now one of the biggest reasons that that's happened is that we we just don't have enough staff we don't have enough capacity in the system in the in the right places um to give people the quick efficient accessible care that they need now if what happens is over four days of disruption the strike leads to a resolution of that problem it leads to policies that can help us with recruitment and retention and to get to a more sustainable footing in the NHS, then I think that's uh, that's that's an acceptable legacy. But, you know, of course, the best way to do this would be for that endpoint, that sustainable endpoint to come earlier rather than after days and days more of disruption. Chris, how much of these problems uh, are particular to the UK? An interesting piece on the Bloomberg Terminal last week about some of the uh, similar challenges being faced by other European countries in terms of uh, staff recruitment and retention. This isn't just the UK, is it? It's not. It's 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 now a reality that, in a way that it wasn't, you know, when the NHS was formed uh, uh, and we had workforce shortages then. That was a very national challenge. It was it was UK specific. Today, what we face is a is a global challenge. The World Health Organization predicts that um, that the world will be short of around twenty percent of the staff it needs in in healthcare by 2030. Um, so it, it really is worldwide. What that means for the UK is, is 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 probably actually that it needs to think even more carefully about the kind of policies it has on pay, uh, working conditions, um, skills and training, the kind of things that draw people in to the UK's NHS to work. Because, you know, we're, we're entering a reality now where lots of countries will be competing for an international pool of, of workers. And if we maintain, uh, as we do at the moment, um, for junior doctors, it's very stark, uh, you know, kind of 10 to 20,000 pound difference to international peers in pay. Um, if we maintain that, then we'll probably be at the, the 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 kind of short end of what's becoming an increasingly global challenge. But Britons are voting with their feet, aren't they? Because you've got these longer waiting lists, you've got creaking services, and then people who can afford it are choosing private health insurance of their own accord, paying for their own care. You can see it in the financials of the private healthcare providers. I know that IPAPBR has done research with the British Medical Journal on this. Is what we're actually seeing privatisation happening by stealth, regardless of government policy? It's it's an incredibly worrying trend, as, exactly as you say. What we see is that when the NHS isn't providing people fast, accessible care that, that people do uh, opt out or, or what you might call privatise themselves. Um, and you can absolutely see why they would. It's 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 unpleasant to, to wait around in in pain or, or with huge anxiety when you don't have to. And that can, in the kind of modern world, be anything from, you know, the, the, the classic of directly paying for surgery or it can be paying 50 pounds to get a same day GP appointment. Um, so we're seeing that trend accelerate. Um, I think 
that's worrying for a number of reasons because what we'll see if that is allowed to take hold is is one the idea that the nhs doesn't have to be brilliant it was always intended to universalize the best to be the best possible care that could take hold lower standards could become the norm and we've seen very similar to that in dentistry where you know kind of it's 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 next to impossible for lots of people in this country to get an nhs dentist at all and we'll also see it widen health inequalities of course the more that healthcare in this country becomes based on means to pay um the, the more health inequalities will widen um and that will be very worrying um particularly because the people that will experience health inequalities are also the same people that experience economic inequalities worse work it will really compound that for them um so i think the onus really now is for um government for any political party really to articulate a vision for how we can get the nhs back to a really brilliant standard of care so that people don't have to privatise themselves, so they don't have to opt out, um, so the NHS is their preferred provider, even if they have a choice. Well, Chris, I want to ask you on that, actually. We're probably 18 months from an election now. What can we expect from uh, a Labour administration? There's not going to be a wall of cash like there was in 1997, is there? So without the cash, what, what can Labour deliver? So I think the next election is going to be fascinating. Parties from across the spectrum are going to be really thinking about uh, what a what an ambitious reform agenda for the NHS will look like. And I think whether it's Labour or the Conservatives, Liberal Democrats, any any UK party, I think there's been a consensus that what you can't have is oversimplistic narratives going into that, that it's either all about funding or that it's simply about stopping some kind of um huge denationalization privatization exercise uh free trade deals with america and that kind of thing um so what i think we'll see is a kind of battle on on what the future of the nhs looks like um i hope at, at its very best what that will mean is political parties start to articulate a really ambitious vision for what health looks like in this country um i'd really like to see them start with a sense of you know, kind of what is it we want health to provide? What kind of good lives do we want people to be able to lead? Uh, you know, we had lots of life expectancy gains in the 20th century driven by quite remarkable medical innovation. But what we haven't had is kind of life put into that life expectancy through delivering really healthy lives. And I'd like to see parties think about um, how they can use the NHS as a tool to make sure people live in, in good health for, for as long as possible. But Chris, um, is, is a brilliant service realistic when you've got an ageing population, ever-expanded services, social care as well, against a backdrop of weak economic growth? So it's it, that that that's that's such a pertinent question, isn't it? I think I think it is, and I think there are three reasons for that. The first is that um, I think health is at the moment the biggest untapped resource that we have as a country to to drive growth, to drive economic prosperity um, across almost all the big crises the the UK economy faces, whether that's its tight labour market, whether that's low productivity, whether that's weak growth. Um, the research is very clear that that good health is an antidote to that. It's the medicine that our economy needs. The second is that we can reduce costs. The best version of our kind of healthcare at the moment would be much more preventative. It would address need much sooner, meaning that it doesn't develop into very expensive um, care needs down the line. That's often better for patients, also cheaper. So a shift to prevention uh, is possible and can make the NHS much more sustainable. And third, there's a very similar story for shifting care away from this very hospital-led expensive model that the UK has and much more into communities, into GP practices, uh, into the places people live. So I think if we combine the shift to community, the shift to prevention with the fact that good health can 
revitalize the UK economy, I think I think that's no understatement, then then there's a very powerful political articulation there, I think. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Thomas, head of the IPPR's Commission on Health and Prosperity. Now, Lizzie, I've saved it for the end of the show. I know it's your favourite subject. We are a month away from a Bank of England rate decision, but there's going to be a new face, isn't there, on the committee? Yes, I do love bird watching. It is my favourite hobby. I don't know quite yet whether we're going to get a dove or a hawk, but it's Megan Green. She is set to replace Silvana Tenreiro, who is currently the most dovish member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. And, of course, it's a delicate time on the Monetary Policy Committee. We're nearing the end of the tightening cycle. You've had 11 straight rate rises so far you've got a fine balance between the likes of Silvana Tenreiro who Green is replacing and Swati Dingra and then Hawks like Catherine Mann fortunately to give us an insight into her thoughts Megan Green happens to be a regular Mm. on Bloomberg TV and radio so we already have some clues to her thinking she's said recently that she's concerned about the impact of tightening monetary policy on the banking system that's more in the US context but In the UK, of course, we're still digesting the banking turmoil around the Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank. So it does uh, matter here. And from the recent writings of uh, Megan Green, it seems that she leans a little dovish. Interesting. So a total dove has left the nest and perhaps somebody a little dovish uh, has joined. But we will see in a month's time. So how will her appointment actually affect the balance on the committee? Well, it'd be hard to be more dovish than Silvana Tenreiro. Um, So it seems like this appointment is going to make the committee more hawkish. But the reality is Green isn't going to take her seat until two meetings time. And by then, the hiking cycle could already be over. Our economists at Bloomberg Economics reckon it's already over. So what's more interesting maybe for people in the UK and especially listeners of this podcast will be Green's open criticism of Brexit on Twitter. Uh, And more influential for the balance of the Monetary Policy Committee uh, will be actually who replaces Ben Broadbent, the deputy governor, next year. He's very influential, which uh, is why um, perhaps he's voted with the majority or the majority's voted with him at every meeting since he joined the committee. Well, that's it for us today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marifa Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Ewan Potts. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.